David Johns, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. You're joining me from the UK. Now, whereabouts in the UK are you? So I'm in Plymouth, which is in the far southwest of the country. Uh, so uh, it's lovely at the moment, beautiful weather. Plymouth's not normally like this because we stick out into the Atlantic. We're normally hit by all the bad weather. But yeah, it's beautiful now. So it's a good time of year. Now, are you originally from Plymouth? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hadn't intended to stay on my working career here, but that's just the way it panned out. You probably can hear cool. my accent. I've got a, uh, it's a very sort of um, country accent, I would say. People in the Southwest have quite a broad accent. Okay. So Plymouth, is it more like a, of a very small town? It's a, it's a small city, a very small city. Um, so we're quite away from London. If you wanted to go to London, we're about four hours by train. Uh, so you can imagine everything pretty much stops maybe two hours away from us. <laughs> it's not much down here. Okay. Very cool. I kind of grew up in that in, in Northern Ontario, Canada. I'm not sure if you know our provinces really well, but, mm -hmm. uh, in a very small town as well. So I can kind of relate to that. Um, so I want to present you to people. You are a plankton ecologist. Uh, you're a scientist. Uh, you work, with plankton, obviously, we're going to get get to that in just a second here. You're also the head of the Continuous Plankton Recorder Survey, which is something I also want to discuss. Sure. And just before we got started, I asked you if you wanted to be called Dr. David Johns, and you said, well, I'm not actually a doctor. And so I'm really curious about that because, uh, you know, you have so many credentials to your name, but you mm -hmm. don't have a PhD. So how did you, why did you stop at, uh, I'm assuming you did a master's? Yeah, I actually, um, it's a good question. I went to do a PhD um, and uh, was doing that um, quite well. Um, I ended up submitting it early as an NPhil. And, and really, not to get into the detail, it was at the time my wife and I were fostering, fostering one of our, our niece who had lots of, lots of problems, lots of um, mental health issues. That, but it basically was just, it just meant I couldn't focus so much really on on that area that I wanted to um but when I was chatting at the time to a sort of a few people that I worked with they were kind of like well you know the PhD is nice to have and the doctor title is nice to have but actually um having the publication output and and the reputation of your work is probably more important so I kind of came to the conclusion that actually it's not it shouldn't really hold me back and it and it doesn't so much in the UK I know it does in some countries it's kind of PhD is seen as the badge and you, you're you not going to progress anywhere. But actually in the UK, it's it's pretty good. Yeah. And the reason I asked the, that question is, is simply because, you know, I do get a percentage of students that listen to this podcast, mm -hmm. right? I mean, they want to listen to the scientists that are the leading scientists in their field and stuff like that. Sure. So it's always refreshing to get somebody who didn't necessarily become a doctor mm -hmm. and, and, and yet still does, you know, so much work and and has you know like you said all the credentials you need in your field so that's really exceptional yeah and it is, um, it's kind of unusual but I kind of like that really because if I if I if I attend a meeting or a conference and you'll see doctor 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 mister I always think you know I'm like the specialist in the room you know if you go to the hospital they always call themselves mister I'm like yeah that's me <laughs> <laughs> that's nice yeah it's funny because I, I when I was uh, researching your work I saw the title, Mr. David Johns, mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, no, that's unusual. I'm going to have to ask him about that. Well, that answers that question then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Uh, okay, so plankton ecologists. Now, I've had uh, somebody that we both know, Dr. Stephen, uh, Steve Thackeray on the show already, and he's, he's an ecologist as well. Mm-hmm. I've had Marianne Denton, who's an ecologist. I've had quite a few ecologists on the show. Probably the most common scientists I've interviewed sure. are ecologists. Uh, but specifically, you do plankton ecology. Now, first question on that is, is it saltwater plankton or freshwater or both? Yeah, all saltwater, all marine. Um, yeah, no, no freshwater stuff for me. <laughs> okay, that's interesting because Steve's work, uh, if I recall correctly, was freshwater. So this is going to be interesting in terms of the, the differences <laughs> here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, okay. Can you explain to the lay people out there, in your words, what exactly are plankton? Sure. They are generally, um, when you're talking about sort of marine plankton, generally microscopic organisms. Um, and I say microscopic, they can they can actually range up to a, a few meters across. So a, a, a large jellyfish would be thought of as planktonic. But really plankton sort of refers to the organisms that are subject to the sort of the, the whims of the currents and the tides. Um, they're sort of moved around. And I think plankton comes from the Greek word planktos, which means to drift. So in the marine environment, there are um, animal plankton, which, which are zooplankton and plant plankton, which are phytoplankton. Um, and they, there's, there's thousands and thousands of different types that, that we see. But generally, the phytoplankton perform much the same way that terrestrial plants um, perform. And they perform photosynthesis, so therefore they produce oxygen. A lot of people wouldn't know that they actually produce around about 50% of all the world's oxygen come from phytoplankton. Um, and then the plank, the animal plankton, the zooplankton, um, you know, some of them stay in the plankton their whole life. They don't live very long. Um, but some of them develop into sort of the animals that most people are familiar with seeing, sort of like crabs, uh, lobsters, sea urchins, starfish. They all start their life in the plankton as these tiny little microscopic creatures that, you know, eventually settle down and then turn into things that we're more familiar with. Okay, hold on. So a lobster starts as a plankton? Sure, yeah. They start as, no um, yeah, yeah. They start as uh, something that look, would look nothing like it. Shame I don't have any pictures to show you, but they're, you know, they're like a little weird crustacean, very tiny. A lot of them have very large spines that come off their heads. There's some of them that, they, they would look nothing like a crab or a lobster. You'd have, you'd have no idea. They're very distinctive when you see them, but then they go through to this stage where the megalopa, where they start to look more like an object, like a, lobster or a crab and then when they get past that stage they settle to the bottom and then they're a lobster or a crab do you know how long that process takes um i don't think it's very long i think it's in the order of months it's not it's not very long but they're tiny we see them in the plankton um, as these megalopa stage you could tell something was a crab so it's got these little pincers it's got a little tiny tail but you're talking you know two millimeters it's very very small and then it would settle down and then it would start to develop from there. I thought that like smaller lobsters, I thought that lobsters would be like the size of crawfish, you know, like <laughs> yeah. I had no idea that it would go from this microscopic thing into a full fledged mm. lobster. Yeah, yeah, absolutely tiny. I think it takes a long time, doesn't it, for lobsters to grow. It takes a long, long time. But um, yeah, they all start that uh, their life as these tiny little eggs and then yeah, floating around in the plankton eventually settle down. Yeah, it's very strange when you see some of them. It, it we actually did a game um, because we do a lot of outreach where it was match the juvenile stage with the adult stage. And for the for sort of 
crabs and lobsters and starfish and sea urchins. They just don't look anything. It doesn't look anything like it. It's guesswork for everybody unless you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely going to uh, Google that one yeah, yeah. <laughs> after this podcast. <laughs> uh, what about other creatures? So I, I know uh, a, a bit about plankton because I, I, you know, I examine creatures under the microscope all the time out of pleasure. Um, there are other crustaceans that pretty much almost remain microscopic like copepods or we like to call them cyclops yeah and so are they relatives of uh, lobsters and crabs yeah they're all crustaceans still um yeah so copepods is good is, is a good example to, to sort of talk about because they're you know, one of the most dominant organisms in the sea actually and for for us you know, we'll, we'll go on probably to chat more about the cpr survey we record, I don't know, 800, 900 different taxa, and most of the work is focused just on the copepods and probably pretty much just on two <laughs> copepods. That's all people are interested in because they play this such a critical role in the marine ecosystem. But they're very similar in, in, to the stuff that you would see, but there's, some of them are just a little bit bigger. Right. I, I, I assume always that the freshwater versions are always smaller than the marine versions. Um, but in the freshwater environment, I've heard that copepods are actually considered a pest. Is that the same okay. in the marine in environment? No, not at all. None of them, as far as I know, none of them would be seen as to be harmful. In fact, they're all, they're, they're keystone species, really. They're, they're, so there's one of them, which you could talk chat about a little bit called Calanus, um, and there's one called Calanus finmarchicus, and it's probably as an adult maybe four or five millimeters long. It's very small. If you were to look at plankton, probably ninety percent of all research has been done on this guy, but it it plays this such a critical role. Um, so larval fish like to eat it, um, other zooplankton like to eat it, but it's also eaten by you know cetaceans, whales, dolphins, um, seabirds will pick them off the surface. Um, so yeah, the complete opposite of the pest. It's it's vital. And in fact, a lot of the work we do is monitoring the sort of health of those populations because they have such an impact on the rest of the ecosystem. You mentioned uh, just right now uh, key species. Mm -hmm. So I guess there are several species that you, uh, you've, you, you've identified as uh, perhaps more crucial than others. How does that work? And what are other examples of other um, key species? Yeah, I suppose we, we sort of try to think of them as key species. I suppose everything, uh, everything's got a place, isn't it, really? But the, these guys, these, these sort of copepods, um, certain of the phytoplankton, I would suppose, they play just this pivotal role, and Calanus particularly, that's the one we really know so much about. Um, everything within a lot of the ecosystems depend on it. Um, it it's sort of, like I said, it's, it's eaten by fish, eaten by larval fish and by larger fish. And actually part of the sort of calamus life cycle is they store fats, lipids in their body. So they act as this link between sort of like, you know, the primary producers and then the secondary consumers. And if you didn't have them, you basically wouldn't have a healthy fish population. So in the UK, everybody, you know, you probably know everybody, everybody likes to eat cod. It's cod over here. Everybody likes <laughs> cod. It's like a very um, conservative palate. And, Calanus are vital to sort of cod larvae development. So anything that's happening to the to the calanus has this ultimate impact onto cod populations. Okay, that's that, yeah. I definitely want to get to to speaking about um, their population in just a minute. But I, I want to stick a little bit to the to you know learning more about the plankton in general. Um, and so calanus is, is a very important one. You mentioned phytoplankton. What would be one that you're really really looking at? 
it, the phytoplankton one is quite we tend to quite lump them in a way because there's lots of species lots of species and when you start to do sort of any um any sort of population work they are all doing various different things you know we, we've got long-term data sets and it's and it can be quite noisy if you look at it so you tend to group them into like we call functional groups so within the phytoplankton you have um, mainly diatoms um, which are little tiny primary producers um, which are like a little silicate set shell you probably get them in you get them in freshwater and they do oh definitely um, and some of them are, you know, little round, like little petri dishes, and some of them are long and thin. But the other big group are dinoflagellates, um, which are kind of, um, what do you call them, kind of mixotrophic, so they can photosynthesize, but they can also ingest things as well. So we tend to quite often lump most of us into these two groups. So we have a look at what diatom, total diatoms are doing and what total dinoflagellates are doing, see how they're changing in relation to each other. Because, you know, the the, the sort of, population of the two together can sort of tell you a little bit about what's going on in the environment what about um creatures that change with the seasons so for example in freshwater there's a senora um there are volvox for example will change with the seasons They'll, they tend to appear in the colder months um not so much in the, the warmer months is that the case uh, with the oceans do we get mm -hmm. creatures that appear uh, based on temperature and uh, seasons? Sure, yeah, very much so. So sort of particularly around uh, the North Atlantic and the sort of Northeast Atlantic, where, you know, where we're based, there's very strong seasonality. Um, and the plant plankton blooms in the springtime, much like you would get in the Egodania woods and you would see it. Um, and that's kind of a factor of of temperature as you mentioned but also light levels it needs it needs a particular amount of light in the daylight to sort of spark them off um, and then you get this peak in the spring of diatoms they're the always ones that respond really rapidly um, and you tend to get very large populations of them and at the same time uh, the sea around the sort of UK becomes such becomes stratified it becomes war it warms up and there's no vertical mixing so what you get then is the surface nutrients start to get depleted. So these diatoms, which are photosynthetic and they need this stuff, they start to die out. And then you get the dinoflagellate community takes off because they're mixotrophs. So they can sort of photosynthesize, but they also they can sort of consume other things. So that's that's kind of like the the, um, like the normal way it progresses in the, in the plant plankton. And then quite often at the end of summer, as you're going into autumn, we tend to get over here it's it becomes windy stormy you know the end of the summer um, and mixing occurs again in the oceans which then resuspends nutrients um, and then you get another diatom bloom so you get diatom bloom in the spring dinoflagellate bloom through the summer and then another little diatom bloom in the autumn and that kind of the, is the classic way that it reacts and you can see that from the data very clearly and then there's a number of the okay. sort of animal plankton the zooplankton will respond along this you know, some like to be there right at the front when the diatoms are kicking off. So Calanus, for example, they time, they sort of time their um, egg productions, or whatever, just after the bloom. So there's lots of food them to eat. And another, some of the other stuff start to come later in the year. So, yeah, very clear seasonality. Um, I'm just curious, do you ever look at marine tardigrades or have you seen any when doing your research? <laughs> never seen any. No, never seen any. Really? And it's probably, and I think it's the, I know they're tough. I know they're very, very tough. I don't wonder whether or not 
being fixed in formalin because our samples um, we fix them kind of on the fly with, with formalin um, so everything that comes back is really well and truly dead so I imagine if they because they go into like a what do they call it a ton stage the resting stage yeah like cryptobiosis like a ton state yeah yeah and I, I wouldn't know what that, that looked like so if it didn't look like a little piglet we probably, we probably wouldn't <laughs> recognize it I just always ask, you know, I, I've interviewed some marine biologists and stuff, and I'm always like, have you run into a marine tardigrade yet? Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because my partner and I are actually moving to the East Coast next year. So we're moving to uh, Prince Edward Island here in Canada. Okay. Uh, and it'll be my first experience with the, you know, the marine environment. So I'll be sampling all sorts of things. And I'm curious to know, you know, you you research you know for uh, scientific purposes, but uh, you know somebody like myself who's not a scientist and moves to a, like a marine environment, um, would you recommend that I should I should like sample tide pools to look at plankton? Should I sample the shore? Should I throw a plankton net over a bridge or something? Like, yeah, what's the think, best way. Yeah, I think some of the certain times of the year, I think they probably all got their advantages to be honest, and you're going to see slightly different communities. The, the sort of ch chucking the, the um, plankton net in works really well, like surprisingly well. Um, we've had a couple of guys who do that. You know, if we have students coming in to have a look, because all our plankton tends to be dead, <laughs> we have people just going to the shoreline and just literally throw it off, throw it off, tow it around, bring it back. And uh, you know, this, where we now, June, June to August, it'll be, it'll be rammed with organisms, absolutely rammed. There'll be so much to see. Lots of jellies. It's what you see a lot of. It's a little tiny, tiny jellies that are difficult to identify. Yeah, I've never seen a gel like a real live jellyfish. <laughs> I've been to Portugal. <laughs> I saw some dead ones on the beach, but I never saw a real life one. Oh yeah, you'll definitely see them there. <laughs> oh yeah, are they? Do you know if uh, if my like really small jellyfish are, are they poisonous when they're that small? No, or? no, no, not at okay. all. No, they'd be far too small. They, we we see them on the samples a lot. The thing is with the CPR sample, we'll probably go on to explain it. it it's towed behind um, merchant vessels. So it's it's going pretty quick. It can be doing 20 knots. So when it hits a jellyfish, you can imagine it. But what you see on the sample are the, are the nematocysts, the stinging cells. Um, yeah. So they're really clear. You can see them really, really clearly. Um, but they're, they're, they're tiny at that stage. They're really, really tiny. They would never, they'd never penetrate your skin. It needs to be a slightly heftier. So what would you say, I guess, you know, for people who are like, well, why, why are you studying this microscopic life? Like, why, why does it matter? Like you, you gave the cod example, which I think is a, is a really convincing one, which is uh, guys, you know, if we don't study this microscopic life, we're not going to get as much cod and then, you know, we're not going to have as much fish and chips. So yeah. like, <laughs> what, what would you say to, to people, you know, why study the microscopic Sure. Yeah. Well, there's, lo there's, there's loads of reasons, really. But one of the things you can sort of call it is it's the canary in the coal mine, the plankton community. You know, anything that is going to happen is going to happen there first. You know, the plankton, they're um, multi-generational on a small time scale. You know, they react really rapidly. If you look, think of something like an oak tree, you know, an oak tree, it would take you ages for it to see anything going on or anything. It would, it would take you ages to see if climate was having an impact unless it was a massive sudden event. Um, but with the plankton, because they reproduce so rapidly and the community is just turning over, you can see anything going on. So climate impacts, pollution impacts, you can see them straight away. But because they're so important to fisheries and so they're, they're so important to all marine life, you know, that's the reason we say that you need to study them. They give you this idea of what's going on in the ocean. 
people like to talk a lot now about this term called multiple stressors. So if you think about the marine life and you think about fish, you know, the main stress on fish in most places is overfishing, isn't it? It's anthropogenic impacts. But that's not the only thing in, impacting fish. You know, there's also the temperature from climate change. There's also pollution. But there's also the impact on what they eat. So what's going on with the plankton will impact on the fish as well. So you st it starts to add up this sort of yeah, multiple stresses. And you need to get a handle on all that because you couldn't put any management in measures in place without knowing everything. You know, you could say, actually, you know, in the, in the UK, we'll stop fishing for cod. No problem. You know, the, the stocks will recover. Well, they probably wouldn't recover because it's too warm for them in most of the UK waters. And they're moving north as well as their plankton food stuff of choice is moving north as well. So, so there's lots of sort of things to consider. So you know, that's kind of why we say it's important. So I guess like in, in this cod example, the cod would just follow the, um, the, the, the stuff that they eat, essentially? Yes. Yeah. So it's kind of they're following that, but it's also they prefer colder water and their food stuff prefers colder water. So they're both kind of shifting, shifting away. And we've seen in sort of our results, we've seen around about a 10 degree shift in latitude over a couple of decades around the UK wow. of plank of the plankton community. So you've get the the colder water the preferring plankton has shifted northwards. And there's been a shift up from the south of the warmer water plankton. But it, it's not a like for like replacement. So if you sort of go back to the Calanus I was talking about, so the so the one that the, the cod really like is called Calanus finmarchicus, which is a cold water form. You get it off Canada as well. There's a chance if you um if you sample on the east coast you'll see them there. They're very common. Um, but you also get a warm water form called called Calanus helgelandicus. So that's moved up as this other Calanus has moved away. They both co-occur, which is a real pain because they look almost identical. And to separate them in analysis is, is really tricky. These things are five millimeters long, really, really small. And their rear leg, the inside, which would be the inside of their thigh, has these little teeth. So you have to look for these little teeth for the angle they're at. That's the only way really of reliably doing it without using genetic tests. And considering that you get thousands of them in the sample, that you know it just would be impossible <laughs> to do. So yeah, so the, the cold water form has more moved for the north. The warmer water one has moved in. They haven't replaced each number like for like. And on top of that, they also have a slightly different seasonal cycle. So the cal the the Helgelandicus, a warm one, tends to peak later in the year, which is not so good for the cod. And they also store lipids. I mentioned about them storing lipids. The Calanus finmarchicus generally stores lipids um, more effectively as part of its life cycle, whereas Helgelandicus doesn't. So it's kind of like there's less of them. They peak a different time of the year and they're potentially less nutritious. So it's, it's quite an impact. And the cod knows which one is which. I don't know if they can, if you put it in, if you they were to choose, I would. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that would be a fun experiment to do. It would, and that would be an easy way of identifying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, do you know uh, if this kind of survey is being done in other countries around the world? Is it really unique to the UK? Uh, no, it is done, being done in other countries. So, so it it started in the UK. Um, the very first kind of CPR tour was 1931. So it's actually our 90th anniversary this year. Um, and then it's kind of moved around. So we have a we have a survey that we run in the Pacific that's been running for about 20 years. Um, there's a survey that's run in the Gulf of Maine, which was run by the US. Uh, the US stopped funding it, but now they're funding it again, but we're running that one. And then there's um, one in Australia, there's one in New Zealand, 
Um, there was one in Cyprus, but I think the funding stopped there. Uh, Brazil, I think, have been doing some work. So there's a few, there's a few scattered around, and it's kind of like um, there's it's a global association of CPR surveys or something. GACs, it's a horrible acronym. <laughs> so then I guess I'm going to have to lobby the scientists in Canada to start one on the East Coast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> actually, we, we we do run a route, um, and well, a number of routes in that area. We have one that runs from Iceland down to the tip of uh, Newfoundland. Uh, St. John's, I think it would be. And then we've got another one that runs from the sort of bottom of Newfoundland across to the Gulf of Maine. Um, and those routes are actually partly funded by DFO. So DFO do that now. No way. Which is DFO, which that I don't know if you know. So cool. I'm assuming you know DFO, but it's one of the, it's the sort of like the department. Is it fisheries and ocean? I can't think what it stands for. It's a big Yeah, actually, it's funny it. because my partner works for DFO. Oh, so okay. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, quite, it's quite fascinating. I had no idea that they had a partnership uh, with the UK to do that. That is really, really cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's really good. And we, we actually work with them and with uh, NOAA from the US. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of, both part fund a number of routes and then they share the data. So we're very open with the data and we let anybody have the data if they want. So, uh, okay. So the continuous plankton recorder survey, let's just call it the CPR because you've been uh, (laughs) using that acronym. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So you said it started in 1931. Was there a reason why they started it? Did they really know back then that we, we, this was important to study? Uh, Not really, no. It was started by um, a guy called Alistair Hardy, who was a fishery scientist. So until I know anybody listening to this might might know, might not know. So the CPR survey was actually called the Sir Alistair Hardy Foundation up until only a few years ago. And then we merged with the MBA, if you can see my (laughs) T-shirt. So we've now merged. David's got his shirt on. on. Um, So we we merged with them. Um, But yeah, Alistair Hardy was based in Hull, which is sort of the northeast of the UK. And he was in contact with local fishermen. And they'd been noticed, they were herring fishermen, actually. They had noticed that when they were going out, casting their nets for fish, if the water colour was a certain colour, they'd either get more fish or less fish. So they'd been chatting to him saying, oh, this is really weird, what's going on? So he designed um, a plankton indicator, kind of the forerunner of the CPR, which was a very small metal tube, maybe, I don't know, like a foot long. It was like a very mini torpedo. Um, they could throw it off the back and it had little silk discs, which act like a little mesh, and they could bring it back. And if it had plankton on it, um, he provided instructions. If there were if there were certain plankton on it, like Macalanus, they would know to throw their fish over that throw their nets overboard. And we actually found recently one of his original adverts, and I'll have to email it to you because you would never get Please away do. with it now. It's just kind of like this is guaranteed to increase your catch by 80% a night. And it was just, he was, I always think of him as a little bit like, um, what's he called? The guy from The Greatest Showman, you know, where you really, really sell. And I think the only way you think it's been running 90 years, you need somebody like that who's, who's kind of a visionary, but also, you know, can really sell something. You mentioned watercolor. Do plankton change the color of water? Sure. Yes, they do. Yeah, they. Um, so you get lots of plankton blooms. Mainly the phytoplankton blooms can change the water, so it can be green, brown, red, um, depending on depending on the species. Um, and that quite sometimes is quite a good idea, an indicator of what's in the water. So if it's red, it tends to be a dinoflagellate bloom. We get um, this thing called Phaeocystis 
which is kind of this disgusting foamy slime and that makes the water go brown so interesting i was talking to somebody today that potentially another another collaborator um, about looking at phaeocystis and it's in the uk and it's probably the same in most countries people report it as sewage they say it's sewage outflow but it's not it's actually a phytoplankton and it just blooms and then the wave action just makes it froth up and it just looks it looks foul it looks really horrible so if you see that in the water it's wow. normally not sewage it's, it's fine to swim and it would just feel disgusting <laughs> it, it's interesting because uh i recently took some some samples about a month ago in a very small temporary pond. Mm -hmm. And um, now I don't know if there's a, a marine equivalent to this creature. It's called a euglena. Are there marine equivalents? Do you know? So that, that's, euglena? Yeah, I think so. That You have to remind me what it looks like. Isn't it like a little kind of a little wormy thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, my, but it has like a, a big, it's a flagellate. So it has like a flagellate at the end and like an eye in, in, at the other end. And anyway, what's interesting about this is that the one I saw was red. Yeah. And it turns out that they can become red in response to the UV light. And oh, okay. if you have a whole bunch of them, it'll turn the water red or it'll it'll appear red. Yeah. And so I that was my first real encounter with a creature that can change based on environment, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's the same with some of the dinophyses as well. I think because like I said, they they're mixotrophs, they can absorb other little organisms, they can take in other types of sort of really small algae and the, the colour of them can change. And then yeah, you get this bloom. And some of the blooms can be quite toxic. Um, some of these can cause red tides. If you sort of Google red tide and have a look, they can cause fish kills and they can actually even give off a gas that can get into the air and can be toxic to people. They can be pretty nasty, to be honest. I think yeah, actually I don't some know of if these... you've heard of, I was just about to say, I don't know if you've heard of the mysterious brain disease uh, crippling New, New Brunswick, Canada right now. They don't know what it is, but they are suspecting maybe an uh, like an algae or something. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Because I know yeah. a lot of the East Coast fisheries gets closed quite a lot through these yes. sort of harmful bloom outbreaks. Yeah, so it's yeah, really it's so really it's... difficult to... Yeah, I was chatting to somebody today about how she was looking at um, satellite data and trying to match up satellite data with potential harmful algal blooms because they look at the um, like the, the sort of different light spectrum and how it, how it bounces off from the satellite image. But a lot of these phytoplankton species that can be harmful they're not harmful all the time and often we don't know what makes them go harmful sometimes it's the sheer volume of them you makes them kind of toxic but other times you can get masses and masses of them and they cause no issue at all so it's really difficult to see you could take your water sample and say oh look there's like a million pseudonychia it's one of the species in there um that should probably make me really ill but actually it might not do anything or it might make you really ill. You just, you don't know. And you'd have to actually go in the genetic route to identify to see which strain you're in there. So it's, it comes really tricky. Yeah. So when you're evaluating this uh, through the survey, um, mm. are you making a, you know, an urgent note about the potential harmful blooms when you survey this or? No, we don't. Our, the way that we work, because, because we, we've got such a massive survey that sort of covers most of the North Atlantic and most of the Pacific, we're, we're always behind with the analysis of the samples. So we don't do that kind of um, immediate response. And actually, that was part of my discussion today with somebody. I would say we, we were kind of wary of doing that because it's, you know, you could end up closing an oyster fishery down because you find this particular species. and Actually, it might be fine. And then, you know, you potentially have lost those people thousands and thousands of dollars. So you have to be really sure, okay, yeah. <laughs> really sure what you're doing. 
Yeah, I would imagine those would be like smaller operations, like micro operations that, that are monitoring this continuously, I, I would imagine. Yeah, I, I should imagine. So in, I, I'm not certain what it would be like on your side of the Atlantic, but over here we have the, it's called the Environment Agency, which is kind of the UK wide, and they go and take samples all the time from close inshore, just all the time. So they take samples of the plankton, of the phytoplankton to have a look, but they also take um, samples to look at the chemicals in the water. To see if, it, if okay. there's toxins present. Okay, so this this uh, CPR survey is essentially describe to me how how it happens. Is it like once a year you guys all hop into a boat, <laughs> you drag a big giant plankton net around, you know, the ocean? How does it work? How often do you actually survey the water, and how long does it take to process the data? Is it like an annual uh, report that you process? Uh, tell me more. Sure. Yeah. So it's it's very different to that. So it's we use ships of opportunity. So merchant vessels, uh, ferries, tankers, all sorts that use their normal routes. Um, so you know you could have one going from, like I said, one goes from Iceland and it goes across to Newfoundland, and they do they do that route transporting cargo maybe every month. Um, and what we do is we ask them to tow the CPR for us. So it's the CPR is, um, let me think, it's around about a meter, maybe three feet long, like a, like a big torpedo. Um, and it's attached to a wire and it, and they throw it off the back of the vessel whilst the vessel's underway. They don't need to stop. The whole idea is we want to have minimum interruption to those guys because obviously, you know, that's their livelihood, their commercial companies. We hardly pay them any money at all to do this. They basically do it as a favor to us. So you, you couldn't run our survey without, without the merchant shipping help. Um, and they tow that CPR on their normal monthly route. Um, they can tow the CPR for 450 nautical miles before they have to pull it in. And they can pull it in and they can put a new, what we call an internal, like a cartridge in it. Um, then they can throw it back over. So if they're going from, say, Iceland to Newfoundland, they'll do that three times. They have three internals that go, that go in there. Uh, and then they get to their port wherever they're going, and then they will box up the CPR and send it back to us in Plymouth. And it comes back, and then we we basically take the sample out. Um, the CPR works by collecting plankton on silk. So we actually use silk mesh. Um, it's pretty difficult to describe, like like verbally. It's it's almost like um, it's it's like a long sandwich. There's two pieces of silk, um, which are around about four inches across. But they are, I don't know, 20, 30 feet long. So a long, two long ribbons. They're collected inside the CPR. They're wound up. And they basically unravel as the CPR goes by the action of the propeller on the back, which works a little gearbox and it advances it. So at any one time, there's a section of silk that's maybe uh, four inches by three inches exposed in the CPR which acts as this fishing net, basically. So the plankton gets stuck on it and it's advanced by the action of the, of the propeller and it goes into a storage tank, which has formaldehyde in it, which then fixes it underway. So it's it, all flush. Oh, it does all the, 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 the fixing as it's uh, underwater? Yeah, as it's underwater. There's like a wow. cha little chamber in the back and some cotton wool and we put some formaldehyde in there. And as the as it goes in the water and the, you know the seawater sloshing around, it's sufficient to biologically fix it. When it comes back, it gets some sort of secondary fixing as well. But yeah, we've got samples going back to you know, like the fifties that in storage that you know they're okay. You can get some things off them. It's they're fixed enough. Pretty incredible. 
Who who designed this contraption? Yeah, so it was out. The guy, guy I mentioned earlier, Alice, Alistair Hardy. It was kind of like the second or third version that he came up with. They sort of escalated in size from a foot to eventually three foot, and the, and the design is virtually unchanged since then. It's all mechanical. It's almost like a clockwork um, spring inside it, and the idea, the fact that it is mechanical, it doesn't need a power. It doesn't need any power source. You don't need a powered cable, and you can throw it off the back of a tanker at twenty knots, and it's fine which you can't do with most modern pieces of equipment. Wow. Yeah, that's really, really impressive. As, uh, as somebody who is very familiar with this, this uh, contraption, I'm just curious, would you make any improvements to it if you could? Yeah. Yes. I think um, the, fact that, the fact that the way it's made and the metal and everything is perfect, you know, it's, it's nice and solid. But we, you know, we are thinking of things that we can bolt onto it to give us additional information. We have actually got a project that's just kicking off now where we're going to we're going to potentially put on a holographic imager. So it will actually um, take images underwater using lasers that will give you this holographic 3D image of, of things. So it'd be another way of identifying. So which is crazy. It's, that's going to be trial. My mind is just blown. <laughs> next month or so. Um, and you can also put temperature sensors, depth sen sensors, um, sort of chlorophyll level sensors. All, all sorts of things. So you can kind of augment this CPR with, with that. Yeah, because these merchant ships, are they sending you uh, data, you know, um, as a companion to, to, to the actual machine? Like, are, are they letting you know, okay, we dropped it off at this uh, coordinate, this is how deep it was, this was the temperature that day, et cetera? Yeah, they let us know the coordinates of what we call the shoot and haul coordinates. So they'll say, okay, you know, at 5 p.m. on Monday, we threw it off at such and such. And then any, and any sort of course changes, they will also give us the information. But that's kind of how traditionally it's been done. So what we want to move away from is that that's, that's good for the, for the sort of the scale the CPR works at. We say it's broad scale. It can sort of um, it can give you information on you know, large bodies of water. But if you want to look at what you certainly would call fronts, you would get them in fresh water where you get a difference of water masses, different temperature water masses, or eddies, which can be like you know, large scale up to, say, 100 kilometer, um, 60 miles or so of different temperature water within the sea. Um, the CPR is kind of OK for that, but it would be better if we could get more accurate um, positioning. So we're thinking of different ways. You could obviously get GPS. You could ask the GPS um, from the vessels. But what we would do, like I say, we, we're really conscious. We don't want to give them any more work. We want sort of like the minimum impact on everything that they do. What's the uh, what's the deepest that you can go with this survey? It, uh, it tows pretty much a fixed depth. Um, so they tow out, they let out 25 meters of wire or so, maybe a little bit more to at the back, and it flies underwater of about, at about nine meters. So it's very surface. Now, bearing in mind that we operate behind large vessels with big propellers, we kind of think that the, what they call the prop wash, the mixing, we're probably sampling the top 25 meters of the sea. So, so it's, it never goes any deeper than that. It would just, you could do it, you could probably do it off a research vessel. But it would be difficult because then because you'd have to pay out a lot of steel wire and tow it at depth. And, you know, you don't want to bang into anything. We've lost a few where they towed them into shallow water or they hit icebergs or whatever. Oh, <laughs> They're dear. expensive to replace. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Uh, is there anybody who's actually studying like really deep 
microscopic life and plankton? Um, because I'm assuming that there are plankton in the deeper end of the ocean, right? Yes, yeah, very much so. so yeah, they do it all different methods. They do sort of like, um, oh, we think there's different types of nets, different types of devices that you can drop down that will open at sort of timed intervals so they can go down to thousands of meters and they'll take a sample and go wherever. So lots of guys are doing that stuff. They're really interesting. What what they don't have, this is me selling the CPI survey, they don't have the spatial scale. So they're very good if, you, if you're behind, um, you know, like um, a scientific cruise ship that you go out on and you say, okay, we're going to sample at this point. It's 5,000 meters. Let's drop a sample and let's see what's going on. That just gives you that snapshot and time of what's going on in one little area. And that's very expensive to do. Um, and actually, yeah, it doesn't give you any sort of spatial information at all. So it's, it's, it's interesting and there's lots of science you can do with it. You just couldn't do the science that we do. Okay. So, okay. So now you have all this data gathered from these cool ships that have done this for you. Um, what do you do with that data? What, what exactly are you looking for? So I suppose what we're really about is long-term trends and long-term changes. Um, so we have a consistent data set, data series, going back to 1958. So it's one of the longest running. In fact, probably a couple of months ago, we just got a Guinness World Record for the um, longest running, most spatially extensive data, data set, wow. uh, which is pretty cool because we, we covered 7 million miles now we've done which is, I think, something like 14 times to the moon and back or some crazy, crazy figure. Wow. Um, so we have all this data and it's, yeah, it's consistent. So, so it's, we've used the same methodology, the same instrument. Uh, the microscopes that we use, although they're modern, are based on the original versions. The type of analysis we do is the same. We've got um, standardized procedures, standardized quality assurance. So you can basically say the data that you know, somebody is generating today that they're making in the lab today is comparable to what they were doing in 1958. There'd be no difference. Which means when you start to look at the time series of the data, any changes we see, we know it's nothing to do with anything that we've changed. So these are real time changes, real changes through time. So a lot of the work we're doing is we're looking at what's going on in the community. You know, what's changing? How are they changing? How are they changing in relationship to each other? How are they changing in with other sort of environmental impacts, sort of like the temperature of the sea or the, what's the other thing people think about, sort of like ocean acidification, you've probably heard of that term, how much carbon dioxide there is in the sea, all these sort of things. So we're trying to sort of like have a look to see how things change and why they change and over time and space. That's something that you can do with our data that you can't do with a lot of these other data sets. I'm curious about the standardization part. Uh, what about things like user error, as we would say in the software world, <laughs> yeah. uh, on, on the part of the people who are actually uh, throwing the, the, the survey out, uh, like the merchant ships and stuff like mm -hmm. that? Um, how, how much of that is taken into, into consideration? Is there um, room for error there or not? Um, not so much, because the way that the CPR kind of works, they, either, they generally either work or they don't work. And the success rate of them is in the it's in the high ninety percent. They're really you know they're really robust pieces of equipment. You know I've got friends who've been out to into Antarctica and been on surveys and said the only thing that worked consistent was CPR because because it's like you know seventy year old technology. It's, there's nothing to go wrong. Right. So the guys who throw it over this board, you know, it's very rare that anything goes. Occasionally you get a jam in the system. Occasionally you know it might hit a log or something and it 
bends part of the CPI and it doesn't tow properly. But normally we can get we can get something out of it. And then when it comes back, we have various sort of quality control, quality assurances um, procedures in place. So we have a team of analysts who are looking at the samples. They're all following you know, guidance of how to do things. And at most stages, their work's kind of checked. Um, it'll be checked by a senior member of the team. They'll be looking out for anomalies in things that they recorded. And then they'll go back and they'll check the sample again. Um, and it's also checked again before it's sort of what we call finalized, before it goes into our database. So there's lots of checks in place. And the team themselves have continuous sort of training and Right. It sounds like it's 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 just extremely uh, dependable data, essentially. Yeah. Uh, so what is the thing that's uh, surprised you the most? Like over all the years that you've been working on this project, what's the most surprising finding uh, that, that you've seen so far? Oh, goodness. There's so many things. It's I don't I haven't over the last year, unfortunately, not been in the lab very much. But I was prior to that, you know, looking at the microscope most days and, and you can see something that you, you know yourself when you look at these sort of little organisms. You know, I've been doing this job for 20, 24 years, I think it is now. I could look down the microscope and see something that I've seen probably 10,000 times, but it'll be a really nice view of it or it'll be in an unusual situation. And I'll be thinking, oh, my God, this is like amazing. It's, it's like I'm so excited. I, I've never seen it before, but I have seen it thousands of times. So that's always one nice part of the job. But I suppose some of the results we've seen, some of them are they're really interesting scientifically, but they're also quite scary. The sort of impact. Like what? Um, so we had a a diatom, like a phytoplankton, that we found um, in the northwest Atlantic. So it would have been. I'm trying to think where it would be. I've got a little map here. I'm trying to see where the map would be. So it would be it would be probably just to the east of uh, Newfoundland. Um, so and, and around Nova Scotia. So we picked this up on our samples, very excited, it's totally new. It's like, it looks like a little dinky little domino, little dots on it, really easy to see. And we recognised it because we'd been finding it in our samples in the Pacific. So I got in contact with some guys from DFO and said, have you been seeing this as well? And they had. Um, and it is a Pacific species. So we're finding it in the North Atlantic um, and we put a paper out on it. And the hypothesis is because of reduced ice cover, it's come around the top. It's come around the top from the Pacific into the Atlantic. So it's one of these transoceanic migrations. And you know, we, we made sure we checked everything to say that it was not ballast water. I don't know if you know that ships at sea, they when they've sort of dumped cargo or fuel, they have to put on, they have to take in water to sort of balance themselves. And it's called ballast water. So there's lots of conventions in place that you can't just take ballast water from somewhere and dump it somewhere else. And Canada particularly are really hot on this. They don't allow it at all, ballast water. Um, and the only ships operating in that area were um, kind of icebreakers and coast guard guys from, from Canada. And they're not even going the whole way around. They were just on the coast. So, so we're pretty certain that this has definitely come through from reduced ice. So part of you, you're really excited. Oh, my God, this is like amazing discovery. And we're getting it in the, in the sort of scientific literature and getting really excited. And then part of you thinks, my God, this is just like, this is kind of disastrous. <laughs> what else is going to happen? <laughs> Do you remember what year you discovered that? Yeah, that was in the early 2000s, early 2000s. Wow. And it's still there now. It's not, it's not harmful, but it's just the fact that it's, and it was actually in the Atlantic. Um, it's in the sediment records from around about a million years ago. So they have found it in deep sediments. So it was there, but it's just, you're just thinking, okay, what else is now likely to come through? There could be other things coming through. And what have we done? 
you know to the to the planet that something like that happens yeah that that's pretty alarming um one thing i i did notice is that I, there was a, a guardian article um I guess a, a few years ago, maybe mm -hmm. I'm not sure when it was published, but I did look. I did look it up, and I see that they have a link. So I'm going to put put a link actually to the uh, CPR survey because it is available to the public. Yeah. Right. The results of your survey. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's available to everybody. We and we have, you know, if people wanted specific uh, data sets or to ask specific questions. They would genuinely email myself, um, and then I would kind of help them out or whatever. But we do have a completely open, free data set. Um, which I could, again, I could send you the link to that one. And that data set goes from 1958 to 2018. Um, so it's one of the largest sort of marine data sets you can get hold of. It has phytoplankton, zooplankton, and everything in there has been consistently counted from 1958 to 2018. So it's complete time series of this stuff. Totally free. You can, anybody can have it. <laughs> yeah, I might actually access that. I'm uh, I'm learning I'll how play to... with it. <laughs> I'm learning more programming, so I'm just kind of having fun with my own personal projects, but that could be fun to to kind of play with that data, that sure, data sure. set that would be a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, we have about 10 minutes left. I just want to ask you a little bit about science in the UK. Uh, is it something that, uh, is is scientific research in, in, in the United Kingdom, is that something that's really well funded? Uh, do you see any flaws with it? Do you see any benefits? What are your, what's your overall impression about science in the, in, in the UK? Yeah, I think it's pretty well funded. Um, certainly, in yes, if I say, oh, yeah, it's really well funded in marine science, people would say, no, it's not at all. But it, it, <laughs> it's difficult. I think it's probably like everywhere. It's, it's difficult to get funding a lot of the time. And it's difficult for running something like a survey like ours, a long-term survey. That's quite difficult sometimes to sell to the funders. Some of them will see the benefits. You know, we probably haven't got time to talk about we give a lot of our data um, and do a lot of our data um, into sort of things that are applicable to marine policy. So marine law policy, you know, looking after the ocean. So it, you, we can sell that, you know, we've got this data set, look, it, it fits exactly with this and it tells you about the health of the oceans. That's great. Other funders, particularly the sort of the pure science or what they call blue sky science, they just see us and say, this is old fashioned. It's old tech. You've been doing it for 70 years. You know, who's interested? We need to move on to other things. We need to move on to, I don't know if you know, things called gliders, which are like these automatic submarines, like mini submarines. So everybody wants to use gliders and gliders cost millions of pounds. They're just, it's mental. <laughs> or they want to right. use something else or some other new tech. Um, so you've always got this kind of fight. So the CPI survey, as it's developed, we've very much tried to apply our work and apply our science to sort of societal needs. So it could be fish, fish stocks, it could be marine pollution, it could be ecosystem health. There's all these terms like goods and services and blue, whatever they call it, blue carbon. So all the time we're trying to say, look, you can use it for this, you can use it for that. So just to keep it relevant. So as long as you can keep doing that, it's it's not so bad. But it just means that there's a lot of work is taking up in trying to sort of spin up those proposals and contracts. You know what you would want you want to say look this is a this is a fantastic survey it does it does some things well it does other things not so well um we'll provide all the data to anybody who wants it therefore just give us some money and that's all we'll do we'll just run this we're not looking to make a profit or a charity we'll just do it but actually it's never that simple so you're always working from three year five year two year contracts writing a report putting in the next one to get the next amount of money 
Well, I imagine that's the same. Oh, I know it's the same everywhere. I was going to say, yeah, that sounds exactly like what I hear from scientists in Canada, yeah. where, you know, yeah. whether it's agriculture or space research, it's always the same. It's always like in a three three to five years yeah. scope yeah. And, and, you know, you do what you can. Uh, with the few minutes that we have left, David, I want to ask you about yourself as a as a, you know, yes, you're a scientist, but also you're you're somebody who has other interests. Um, mm-hmm. You know, through the video that uh, we're, we're seeing each other on video, this is only going to be released on, on audio, but I see the, you know, this beautiful picture of a kingfisher. And then you told me that you're really into natural history in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, is that your, your main interest outside of work or do you have other, um, you know, hobbies? Are you an artist? Are you, uh, you know, what else do you do? Yeah, so natural history, definitely. Um, where I live in Plymouth, right on the north of Plymouth, there's lots of countryside nearby. So there's so there's lots and lots of wildlife. We get lots of deer just outside the house all the time, foxes and badgers and whatever. So I really like that. Um, and I like looking at insects and spiders. I'm not an expert on any of this. I'm just fascinated with it. And I, and I suppose I, I like being outdoors. I like, um, I like cycling. I was doing a lot of cycling, but last year I broke both my arms crashing my bike. So it kind of put me off for a little while um but yeah anything sort of active that's me really I'm I wouldn't yeah I like I like to keep busy I like to be doing stuff so I like to go to the gym I like going swimming um did used to do a lot of running so anything is just there to like a period is there like a period in history that you wish you could travel back to just for a week or so to kind of study something about it well that's an interesting question uh like, be. would you go to Easter Island or something? Yeah, that would be cool. That'd be really cool just to see what happened. Yeah. Yeah, or to see how Stonehenge was built. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a good one. <laughs> That's true. Or the pyramids. Yeah, anything like that. <laughs> I'm not mad. Yeah. I'm kind of interested in some parts of history, but you know, some people are really, really, really into history. That was never my strong point at school. And and I I suppose my probably my history knowledge is probably quite shocking, I should imagine. <laughs> <laughs> But I guess, I guess you know, just out of fascination, because I, it sounds like you're a lot like me. You just like to you take interest in in the the natural world around you. Um, whether I mean, for you, it's it's also professional, but it's also out of pleasure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I think, and I think you know, going out and observing anything. You sit in your garden, sit in the woods, sit outside, or even in the middle of a city, you can see so much. It's just so much wildlife around, or so many different things. And I think. It's probably a cliche to say it that, you know, the fast society that we've got, that people don't tend to do this. But, you know, I got to London every night and it hasn't been recently because of COVID. But there's there's so much wildlife in, in London and you can just stop and listen. And there's so many different bird calls. There's all sorts. And you think, oh, I can hear this. And I can hear this. And I'll be saying to my colleagues, oh, there's a wren over there. Can you hear that wren? The wren is a really small little bird and it, they are unbelievably loud. I don't know if you get them where you are, but like crazy loud for something that's the size of, I don't know, inch and a half you think how big its little lungs must be they are so <laughs> so noisy and i'm like oh you can hear a little male wren over there and some of my friends are like what <laughs> what are you talking about I'm like, you do not notice these things you miss out don't you there's so much to, to sort of take in yeah the fast-paced lifestyle certainly does that so on that note let's remind people just stop it you know stop walking where you are take a look down take a look to your left take a look yeah. to your right and look up and see what's around you. Just take a deep breath and just enjoy, 
you know, like you said, even if you're in a city, there's mm-hmm. stuff living in the cracks of the sidewalk. So uh, I think it's a good reminder to share with people. Uh, so, David, listen, thanks again for accepting to come on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. As always, I always feel like, especially with scientists and, and even with artists, I, I always feel like there's not enough time in an hour sometimes no, no. to cover a topic. But I think we, we, you know, at least we've educated people as to what the CPR survey is. People can go look it up. We're going to put a link to the survey. We're going to make Maybe put a link to the data set if you can send me that. And uh, we'll go from there. But uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you very much for for inviting me. It's very interesting. It's a good chat. (laughs) 